Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 69, so whether you're back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It is early Friday morning, February the 2nd, and I'm in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama, just so I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. There's a place where the sun doth shine and the birds keep time with the pines up yonder. That's the home of my Caroline. She's dancing in the sky. tools my babies my people a little bit of caroline from coulter wall i try to turn you on to some good stuff my people and uh if you don't know coulter wall his music is some good stuff well happy weekend to you we made it to a friday i hope that you're having a good morning it is a clear and beautiful day, about 45 degrees here in Alabama, 39 degrees in my shed, but I'm comfortable. And I don't know why I just gave you a weather report. <laughs> that is not something that we do on this show. I've never done it before. I don't think that you care about what the weather is here in Alabama if you are in India or the UK where we are on fire. Or Canada, America's top hat. Or Tennessee or Indiana or Florida or Mississippi or anywhere else that you're tuning in this morning. But for some reason I decided to share the weather report with you. Here on Groundhog Day, 
the day in which America lets a rodent decide our future. And I was on the former bird app this morning over on X. You can follow us there at In the Shed 4. And people were giving Punxsutawney Phil a hard time. And I don't know why. It's a silly tradition. But this is America. And we enjoy silly traditions, okay? Um, hey, I think maybe we should let rodents decide more of our future as a country. Maybe we would be in better hands if they were tiny and from a rodent. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Big news for the show this week. I don't know if you uh, have downloaded the Good Pods app, but if you have not, I recommend it. It's a good place to get your podcasts. And we got some results in. Uh, Email to the show from the Good Pods app. And as it turns out, we are number one in the top 100 conservative news shows all time on the charts. Number one all time. Congratulations to us. Um, <laughs> I just turned half of my listener base off. I don't know that we are necessarily a conservative news show. I think that we are pretty middle of the road. But hey, I also know that I'm coming to you from a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama. So for some of you listening, we are conservative. For some of you listening, uh, you might label us differently. But that's okay. This is a place for everybody. I just think it's pretty cool that we're number one in anything because we have no sponsors. And I'm not a professional. I am a journalist, but I'm not a professional. We're number one all time on the charts over there in conservative news shows. We also got number one in the top 100 Miracles all-time chart. Number one in the top 100 Extraterrestrial all-time chart. So, hey, we're out of this world. Number one in the top 100 Haunting all-time chart. And number one in the top 100 Indie UFC all-time chart. And I think we've talked about the UFC like three times in 69 episodes. But, hey, I'll take it. So we rank number one in five all-time charts over on the Good Pods app. And I think that's worth celebrating, worth noting, worth saying, hey, we did something. (laughs) And whenever we do anything, it's an accident. But it's a happy accident. And it's one that I will choose to be proud of. All right, enough of that. Let's get to some comments and corrections from our last episode. And no corrections this week. No corrections. We did we did all right. We did all we did all right on our last episode. The whole gets squatchy. Our humble little show is being listened to across the globe, 68 countries in total and counting. We are of course being listened to all over this great country of ours, all 50 states, but we are growing. Slowly growing organically growing in popularity worldwide. Currently, the U.S. makes up 49% of our listening audience, followed by India at 39%. Put me on a billboard in India. I want to be on a billboard in India. It's been a while. I thought I'd say it again. The U.K. and Canada are at 3%, followed by France, Australia, Mexico, Germany, Malaysia, and Ireland at 1% each. And I also want to give a special shout out to our six new listeners in the Philippines this week. Mung Undung Umaga, Philippines. 
We're currently averaging more listeners per episode than ever before. Still true thanks to you. We're still adding followers over on X where finally we have surpassed 10,000 followers there. And if you're not one of those 10,000, you can find us there at In The Shed 4. Please continue to support the show by leaving us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you leave us a review this week, we will give you a shout-out on our next episode. By sharing the show with a friend, word of mouth is how we grow. And by joining our membership club at patreon.com slash intheshed4, you can donate as little as $1 or subscribe for exclusive content for as little as $4 a month. If you keep supporting the show, I'll keep bringing you the news. If you subscribe, like, share, and review, we'll keep growing this thing together. I must also mention our YouTube page. I don't shout it out a lot because it is audio only. But you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode over on YouTube. You can find us there at In the Shed with Wes Anderson 6670. We've got like um, 26 subscribers and several hundred views. And we're just getting started. We've got a great show for you this morning, but first let's get to some listener emails. Our first email comes from Tyra from Jackson, Mississippi, who writes, Wes, thank you for shedding light on some of the news emerging out of our city. Corruption runs deep, and the national news is not even touching it. Thank you for writing into the show, Tyra. Maybe you should link up with our guy Tyson from Jackson, Mississippi, who wrote into the show last week to let us know that, hey, you are not a news show. There is a lot going on in Jackson, Mississippi. We covered it on episode 67 of the show. If you haven't heard it, you should listen to that segment there. Some very important and serious and tragic things happening. And you're right, Tyra. It's not being covered by the national news in the way that it should. Uh, We did a poll over on X. Have you heard about what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi? And it was the only poll we've ever done on that platform where 100% of people said the same thing. And their answer was no. And I think maybe they need to plug into some other sources to keep up with what's going on. Our next email comes from Leonard from Indiana who says, Wes, I was surprised to hear you mock a saint. You may regret that. And hey, um, Leonard, I I don't know what show you listen to because I never mock anybody. Um never have that's not what we do on this show i guess you're referencing our coverage on the last show of the phenomenon of stigmata and we talked about one particular case uh, padre pio that uh is interesting but certainly has some holes in his story and there's certainly some question about his reliability as a witness even though he has been deemed a saint by the roman catholic church Certainly didn't mock anybody, just asked some questions, which I think were fair questions to ask. And I don't know what you mean by you may regret it. I don't know if that's supposed to be a threat. Um, I'm in Alabama. I'm ready. I'm right with the Lord. And I'm ready. And finally, the Sandman from West Virginia writes, Wes, you used to regularly read people's paranormal stories on air. I miss that. So I wrote in to share mine. Would you please share it with my shed family? And yes, Sandman, um, 
I will. I say every episode, if you write into the show, I just may read it on air. So Sandman from West Virginia, I will share your story with your Shed family. Congratulations. A few years ago, I was bored on a Saturday and went thrifting at the local Goodwill. While there, I bought some records, a desk chair, and an old wooden doll. I don't know why I bought the doll. Obviously, I don't collect them. I don't have any kids. But it looked hand-carved, foreign, and antique, and it was only a dollar. So I bought it. When I got home, I put it on a bookshelf above my TV in the living room. That night, the TV kept turning channels on its own. I changed the batteries in the remote, but it kept happening. At first, it was annoying, but after it kept happening, it was creeping me out, especially since I live alone. After the seventh or eighth time, I looked up and saw the doll. When I went to bed that night, I swear to you, I heard singing. It woke me up from a dead sleep, hoping it was a dream, but it wasn't. I say it was singing, but really it was more like humming, and again, I live alone. It was the doll, I'm certain. That was enough for me, not sure what else to do, and wanting to get rid of the doll right away, I took it straight out the back door and threw it in the fire pit, dousing it with lighter fluid and setting it ablaze. I didn't really think much about the doll after that, but the next day when I got home from work, I unlocked the front door, went to the fridge, and cracked a beer to relax on the couch. Wes. The doll was back up on the mantel, burn marks and all. I can't explain it, but I swear it is the truth. I left the house immediately, didn't even bring the beer with me. I wouldn't go back until my two best friends were with me. One of my buddies put the doll in a trash bag and took it to the city dump. Scariest and most unexplainable thing that has ever happened in my life. I was terrified. I didn't sleep for three days. And I can understand why, Sandman. <laughs> I think that's beyond, um, that's beyond creepy, Sandman. And I understand now why you call yourself Sandman, you don't give your real name. But that's quite a story. Uh, you bought a creepy doll from Goodwill and some things happened that are not explainable. And I would have tried to get rid of the doll too, um... For some reason, in circumstances like that, a lot of people say that you should never burn the thing. Didn't work out for you very well. Uh, but I'll tell you this, Sandman. Uh, if you write into the show and give me your information, I'll have you on as a guest. You can tell the story in every excruciating detail from start to finish. I would love to have that conversation. Don't know what to make of that story. But I do appreciate you listening into the show and sharing it with us and our audience. Thank you, Sandman from West Virginia. That's all the listener emails this week. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. All right, let's switch to this. Let's get to the news in the world of politics, and let's hit the headlines. Immigrants beat up New York City cops. Welcome to Joe Biden's America, writes the Daily Wire. Tim Scott blasts Biden administration for allegedly targeting Bible purchases, reports the Washington Examiner. Israel turns focus of Gaza attack to Rafah as Hamas weighs ceasefire proposals, says Reuters. From Axios ex-CIA hacker who leaked secrets to WikiLeaks sentenced to 40 years. And finally, Israel is using Bush's war on terror playbook, and that is according to The Nation. Our first story in the world of politics this week China acknowledges imprisoning a British man on spy charges. A businessman who had worked in China for decades vanished from view in 2018, 
but his fate had been unknown and publicly unremarked upon until now. A British businessman who disappeared from public view in China in 2018 was sentenced to five years in prison in 2022, China's foreign ministry said on Friday in its first public acknowledgement of the case. The businessman Ian J. Stones had lived in China since the 1970s working for companies like General Motors and Pfizer. For years after he vanished, there was no public information about his whereabouts, though some in the business community privately discussed his secret detention. A spokesman for the foreign ministry said that Mr. Stones had been convicted in 2022 of buying and unlawfully supplying intelligence for an organization or individual outside of China. Mr. Stone's appeal of the verdict was rejected in September 2023, said the spokesman, Wang Wenbin. Mr. Wang was responding to a reporter's questions at a regularly scheduled news conference after the Wall Street Journal reported Mr. Stone's case on Thursday. The Chinese courts heard the trial strictly in accordance with the law, Mr. Wang said, adding that China protects the lawful rights of Chinese and foreign parties. It's unclear when Mr. Stones will be released and whether he will be given credit for time served before his conviction. Laura Stones, Mr. Stones' daughter, did not respond to a request for comment. But she told the journal that the Chinese authorities had not given her or British embassy staff access to the legal documents in the case, nor allowed them to attend the trial. The revelation is likely to deepen concerns among foreign companies about the risks of operating in China in an increasingly insular political climate, led by China's leader, Xi Jinping, and the country's powerful security agencies. China revised its already sweeping counter-espionage law last year to expand the definition of spying, and has warned repeatedly in recent months about the dangers of interactions with foreigners. Officials also raided last year the offices of several American companies and detained some Chinese employees. Foreign governments have at times accused China of arresting foreigners as political pawns, as in the case of two Canadians arrested in 2018 after Canada detained a prominent Chinese technology executive. An Australian businessman and writer, Yang Hin Jun, is still in detention in China, and an Australian journalist, Chang Li, was released in October. Both have been accused of unrelated national security offenses and have denied any wrongdoing. There is no official tally of the number of foreigners detained in China. Information about the charges against them is usually highly limited. While detained foreigners' governments or relatives sometimes speak up about their cases, some remain quiet, possibly in hopes of negotiating behind the scenes with Beijing. Mr. Stones, who is around 70, had worked as a senior manager for General Motors Asia, helping it to expand to China in the 1990s, and as manager in China for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals. At the time of his detention, he had been working for over a decade as a consultant advising investors on deals, regulations, and disputes in China, according to his LinkedIn page, which is no longer available online. With his decades of experience in the country and fluency in Chinese, he was well-known among Western investors and executives in Beijing. On LinkedIn, Mr. Stone said that Novizino Partners, a consulting company where he was a partner, specialized in finding solutions to difficult challenges, structuring deals, workouts, and turnarounds. He also had relationships with Chinese government agencies. He had presented to China's National Bureau of Statistics, according to an annual report in 2007 by the Conference Board, a New York-based business research group where he was a senior advisor. The length of Mr. Stone's tenure in China made him among the best-connected foreigners in Beijing, said Peter Humphrey, a British private investigator who met Mr. Stone's in China in the late 1970s. Mr. Humphrey was detained for two years in China on charges of illegally obtaining information and deported after his release in 2015. He has said he believed his work in China was legal. 
Some of the people Mr. Stones met during his early days in China went on to become high-level officials, Mr. Humphrey said, which made him especially sought after in the business world. But by 2015, Mr. Stones knew that he was potentially at risk. Mr. Humphrey said the two men met then in Britain not long after Mr. Humphrey's release, and Mr. Stones told him that he had been asked to speak with state security officials and was now under surveillance. He seemed to think he could handle it, Mr. Humphrey said. Obviously, he was wrong. Mr. Humphrey's account could not be independently verified. The circumstances around Mr. Stone's arrest remain opaque, and it is unknown what communications have taken place between the British and Chinese governments. Britain's foreign office declined to comment. Mr. Stone's detention coincides with a period in which the British government has taken a tougher line on China, often siding with the United States' critical positions. In 2020, it banned Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications equipment company, from involvement in Britain's new high-speed wireless network, a decision that Beijing condemned. London's ties with Beijing have also deteriorated over China's continuing suppression of civil rights in Hong Kong, a former British colony. Britain has also criticized China over its repression of Muslims in the Xinjiang region, its military pressure on Taiwan, and its continued partnership with Russia, despite the war in Ukraine. So... First of all, I think that I need to point out that I did a phenomenal job pronouncing all of those names. <laughs> I am a journalist, after all. Um, I find it interesting that one of the foreign heads of Pfizer in China has been disappeared. Um... I'm not a conspiracy theorist necessarily, okay? If you've listened to the show, you know that by now. But you also know that I give it to you straight. I give you the news that isn't necessarily getting reported everywhere else, or at least in a way that it is not being reported, okay? And it is very curious to me that a foreign national in China who has been there since the 70s is very well known has worked for several different international companies, has ties to those in government and in the business world, all of a sudden has been disappeared and arrested on charges of espionage. And under China's new laws, uh, what espionage means is very vague. Um, They're convicting people on espionage if they share information with foreigners even if that means that they work in a company that is a foreign company and they're just sharing information as a part of their job. And this is what China does. Uh, China is not a democracy, okay? Make no mistake about it, China is a communist autocratic government led by Xi Jinping. And they just straight up disappear people. They disappear foreigners, they disappear their own. Uh, there was a prominent businessman in China, a at least a millionaire, if not a billionaire, that runs a company called the AliExpress, which is like their Amazon. And several years ago, he was disappeared. He just uh, went from being a very well-known person in the business world, almost even a celebrity, was internationally known, to just gone. Just gone. Just disappeared. I wouldn't recommend anybody right now that is a foreign national working in a position in a company in China. And you can label me however you want to, okay? 
But I'm just giving you the facts. I'm just giving you the story. I'm just giving you something that you probably haven't heard on cable news. That one of the senior officials for Pfizer in China, after everything we've been through the last three years, after we reported on the show last week that, hey, China is experimenting with a strain of coronavirus that is 100% fatal in mice that have been altered to have immune systems that reflect that of people, has now been disappeared. Charged with espionage. Sent to a Chinese prison. His government and his family was not allowed to attend the trial. None of the documents or allegations against him were shared with them in specific. And this is a problem. This should be a news story. This should be covered on the nightly news. The British government and the American government should be working together to address this scenario. And it's not the only time that it's happened. As stated in the article, it's happened to Australian nationals, to Canadian nationals. China just does what they want. They've got us by the scruff of the neck, economically, to the point that we have very little political sway with them. They do what they want, and oftentimes what they want is dangerous. And this situation is one worth watching and keeping an eye on. And our concern and our prayers go out to Mr. Stones and his family. I hope that he's okay. I hope that he's well. I don't know what information he was sharing that they did not want to get out. But they're a very insular government. And Xi Jinping has full control in China. And you need to know it. Our next story in the world of politics. Alabama has stopped nearly all paroles explaining the Lee Gwathney effect. Thomas Owens can't move his arms or his legs, so his likelihood of committing another property crime is low. Yet one member of the Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles still voted last fall that the 34-year-old quadriplegic man should remain in prison. Board Chair Lee Gwathney alone voted not to parole Owens to a long-term health care facility. But Owens need not take it personally. Gwathney votes against nearly everyone whose case comes before the all-powerful parole board, a board that today serves as the cap on the shaken-up bottle is the state's troubled, jam-packed prison system. I'm convinced that the public should know that the chairman of the parole board voted to deny the medical parole of a nonviolent offender who is a quadriplegic, completely bedridden, and spends most of the day in a catatonic state, said Sue Bell Cobb, whose legal foundation represents Owens. I don't know how she sleeps at night, said Cobb, the former Alabama Supreme Court justice who today runs a nonprofit that focuses on parole for prisoners with medical conditions. Alabama doesn't grant many of those either. And yet Owens squeaked by. On a two-to-one vote, Owens, who was serving 12 years after pleading guilty to burglary, ID theft, and receiving stolen property, was granted medical parole. He became the rare exception for a board that last year granted just 8% of parole requests. According to the board's data, in fiscal year 2023, there were 3,583 parole hearings and just 297 were granted. That's despite the parole board's own guidelines suggesting more than 80% of prisoners should qualify for a second chance. The board even rejected all 10 people over 80 years old who were up for parole in 2023. It wasn't always this way. Just five years ago, more than half of those who had a parole hearing were granted release, but things changed in 2019 when Gwathney took over. 
At the same time the paroles began to slow to a trickle, the entire prison system ran into a crisis. U.S. Department of Justice sued in 2020, arguing that Alabama prisons were overcrowded and understaffed, leading to so much death and violence and rape that they failed to meet constitutional safeguards against cruel and unusual punishment. They also argued that the state wasn't making it better and that the prisons were only growing more crowded. At the end of last year, according to state corrections reports, there were about 20,000 inmates packed into spaces built for 12,000 people. In 2021, the feds updated the lawsuit saying that the murder rate in Alabama prisons soared past the national average, that the buildings were crumbling, and that there weren't enough guards, that rapes and extortion were rampant, and that Alabama appeared uncooperative. The United States has determined that constitutional compliance cannot be secured by voluntary means, wrote the Justice Department. The case is speeding toward a high-stakes trial scheduled for this fall. So how did a troubled state penal system, one short on beds and guards, decide the best way forward was to keep the most people behind bars for as long as possible? All signs point toward the parole board, said Representative Chris England, a Democrat from Tuscaloosa. The buck stops here, he said. You don't have to look very deeply into the process to say, you guys, the chair, you're creating this disparity. Also, you are the problem. There's really no other way to look at it. Owen's hearing was postponed. It was originally set for the spring, but after his standard interview with a parole officer, the board canceled his hearing, saying he was uncooperative. But he wasn't unwilling to tell the board about his home plan, said Cobb. Not only can't he walk, he also can't speak. Redemption Earned, the nonprofit legal group where Cobb serves as executive director, called the legal team for the parole board and explained the situation, and they responded that they would look into the matter. Eventually, Owen's hearing was set for the fall. Gwathney still voted against him. The state's three-member parole board meets three days a week, listening to inmates' advocates and victims alike, deciding who should have a second shot at living in the free world. In Alabama, unlike in some other states, there's no assumption that someone gets parole. It's considered a privilege. The hearings are open to the public, and while pivotal, the hearings are not cinematic. Inmates don't get to attend, and often there are no advocates to speak on their behalf. Each hearing lasts just minutes. If someone does speak, a small timer sits on the podium, taking down the two minutes allotted for family or friends to make their case. The state or a victim's advocacy group usually speaks in opposition when someone supports release. Then it's up to those three people to decide whether to free someone, send a person back to prison for up to five more years before they can try again, or maybe make them finish their full sentence. After listening to a handful of cases, it's quiet. In a flash, the board decides. Women get paroled more often than men, and white men fare better than black men. Black men were 25% less likely to get paroled than white men, according to an AL.com analysis of data from a two-month window in April and May of 2023. Nonviolent drug offenders had a better chance to get out than someone convicted of what the state classifies as a violent offense. But after matching hearing results with individual records, few hard and fast patterns emerge regarding the original crime. And no group does exceptionally well. All sorts of people are denied. Many were caught with small amounts of drugs. Some were being held under old habitual offender rules that Alabama doesn't even have anymore. Some were once out on parole, got sent back on a technical violation like a missed meeting, and now find themselves stuck behind bars, unable to get out again until years later. In 2024, the decisions are made by Chairperson Gwathney, former State Trooper Daryl Littleton, and former Bureau of Pardons and Paroles worker Gabrielle Simmons. A majority vote wins, and that's hard to come by. Someone needs to ask Chairman Gwathney, does she truly believe in parole, said Cobb. 
because her voting record indicates that she does not. When AL.com approached Gwathney during the meeting on January 9th, she declined to comment. She said she had a meeting to run to. She also denied a formal interview request sent via email. If you commit technically a violent offense, regardless of the crime, regardless of the rehabilitations, regardless of how many decades you spent behind bars, regardless of how phenomenally well-behaved you've been behind bars, said Cobb, she continues to vote no. Before Gwathney led the board, there was Lynn Head. Head, a prosecutor for nearly two decades, joined the board in 2016 and became chairperson in 2018. In the months before Head got to the Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles, the number of people being paroled was rising. It wasn't because the board suddenly had a soft-on-crime approach. After dealing with an earlier threat of federal intervention into overcrowded and unsafe prisons, the state passed criminal justice reforms in 2015 that required board members to consider parole guidelines and criteria and consult those before making a decision. The tool used at the time was the Ohio Risk Assessment. As a prosecutor, Head didn't find it easy to vote to release someone with a serious charge, she said. But she dug into the national best practices for paroles, researching and attending various training sessions. That training opened my brain, and I discovered that there's science applicable to this, and that was the greatest discovery for me, she said. To have a concrete scientific basis for granting or denying parole. It wasn't a crystal ball, but it was the closest thing we had. In 2020, not long after Gwathney joined the board, the board adopted a new set of guidelines unique to Alabama. But the board isn't using those either. Every month in 2023, according to data, the board's own criteria indicated a recommended parole rate of about 80%, but they never came close to conforming to those guidelines at all. At the end of the year, they had met their own guidelines about 12% of the time. It's really arrogance, said head of the current board. Why would you not just see what it's all about? It's an apathetic attitude toward truth. So, an apathetic attitude toward truth. And that is essentially the motto when it comes to criminal justice in the state of Alabama, the state in which I reside, the state in which my shed is parked in my backyard. And look, I am not anti-law enforcement by any means, okay? Um, I understand and have compassion for family members or those who are victims of crimes that have been committed and want people to be punished for those crimes. I get it. I really do. But on this show, we cover international news, we cover national news, and hey... We cover local news, too. And this is in my backyard. Next to my shed. This is in my backyard. And our criminal justice system in the state of Alabama is broken and in need of desperate repair and reform. Um, As the article stated, our prisons are overcrowded. The crime rate inside them is astronomical. Our inmates are not protected. There's not a whole lot of rehabilitation taking place. And even when it does take place, good luck getting paroled. 8% of those who are up for parole are being granted it. And that's the lowest percentage by far of any state in the union. It's a problem. This does not look like justice to me. And there needs to be some... Hard questions asked of one Lee Gwathney. She needs to face the public. She needs to account for her voting record. 
when it comes to these matters. I get not wanting to be soft on crime. I I get keeping violent offenders in prison to serve their sentence. But hey, some of these folks deserve a second chance. Some of these folks deserve to start over, to be with their families, to be contributing members of society again. But she's going to vote no, almost no matter what, even when one of the people who is up for parole is a quadriplegic who cannot even speak, who stays in a catatonic state and she still voted no. Before becoming head of the parole board, Lee Gwathney worked in the attorney general's office, and I get that that may mean that she would vote no on in a lot of these cases, It shouldn't mean that she votes no in every single case, which is about what she does. Okay. Alabama, where the U.S. Department of Justice has filed suit against us because of the state of our prisons. Alabama, where last year we covered on the show how multiple times we failed to put someone to death when we tried. And there was very little done to correct the process. An internal review where the results were not made public. Alabama, who just put someone to death last week in a way that no other state in the country has ever done before, and many experts were testifying saying this needs to be stopped. This is inhumane. But we did it anyway. Alabama, where allegations persist that our work release program for prisons is basically for-profit slavery affecting the poor and the marginalized and minorities more than any other group. This is wrong. This might be criminal, but it's certainly wrong. And this all came about because several years ago, there was a situation where a man who was uh, in prison for life on a murder charge was paroled, and then he went on to murder three people. And so then this uh, is an overreaction to that. Obviously, that's the situation where mistakes were made. You don't want anyone who is dangerous to fall through the cracks. The governor appointed Lee Gwathney as the parole board chairperson, and now nobody is getting out as a direct response to what happened a few years ago. That situation was certainly tragic and wrong and upsetting. Never should have happened. But in response, you have a hundred situations Hundreds of situations that are wrong and are tragic and should not be happening, and yet they are. I would love to have Lee Gwathney in the shed. I would love to have her on the phone. I would love to ask her some questions like, Hey, what are your standards when considering whether or not someone should be paroled? Because in response to the Justice Department suing the state of Alabama, there were criminal justice reforms approved in 2015 in the state, and you're not even following those, except for 12% of the time. And I haven't been in school in a long time, but 12% of the time, hey, that's a failing grade. That's an F. I give you an F, Lee Gwathney. And something needs to be done about it. We cover criminal justice reform on the show because it matters to our society as a whole. Because it's important. Not because we're soft on crime, but because we believe that the purpose of prison should be punishment and reform. Punishment and rehabilitation. 
It's a both-and situation in Alabama. We just have the one. And it should be covered by national news. Our state is dead last when it comes to parole, and that is not acceptable to me. And I hope it isn't to you either. My babies. My people. My tools. But hey, what do I know? I'm just the number one conservative news show on the Good Pods app. Our next story in the world of politics, for new moms in Seoul, three weeks of pampering and sleep at a jury one. Some new mothers say postpartum care centers are the best part of childbirth in South Korea, where fewer people are deciding to have children because of high costs. Four mothers sat quietly in the nursing room around midnight, breastfeeding their newborn babies. As one mother nodded off, her eyelids heavy after giving birth less than two weeks earlier, a nurse came in and whisked her baby away. The exhausted new mom returned to her private room to sleep. Sleep is just one of the luxuries provided by South Koreans' postpartum care centers. And hey, when sleep is considered a luxury, um... (laughs) And it is for new moms. I digress. The country may have the world's lowest birth rate, but is also home to perhaps some of its best postpartum care. At centers like St. Park, a small boutique postpartum center, or jury one, in Seoul, new moms are pampered for a few weeks after giving birth and treated to hotel-like accommodations. Fresh meals are delivered three times a day, and there are facials, massages, and child care classes. Nurses watch over the babies around the clock. New moms are summoned from their rooms only when it's time to breastfeed in the communal nursing room, where they're watched by the nurses. Women who choose not to breastfeed are free to spend their time focused on healing. Staying at a jury wand can cost from a few thousand to tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the length of stay, which is often 21 days, the amount of time it takes for a woman's body to heal after childbirth according to Korean custom. But the centers weren't always so luxurious, said Yun Sarah Kim, 46, the owner of St. Park. When I had my first child, there was no place to go, she said. Normally in Korea, the grandmother should take care of the new baby, but my mom didn't have the skill, so we decided to go to a jury wand. In 2007, when Miss Kim was pregnant with her first child, jury wands were not yet popular. The jury wand she toured was in an office building. The elevator was shared by workers returning from daily smoke breaks. The room was small and uncomfortable. At that time, there was no nurse to take care of the baby, Miss Kim said. She opened St. Park in 2008 with the mission of providing exceptional care for new mothers in a Bali-inspired retreat. It became one of the first high-end jury wands in Seoul. It's kind of like we are the transition between hospital and home, Miss Kim said. We don't want moms to run into trouble at home. That's our approach. Throughout the hallways of St. Park, workers quietly collect dirty laundry and deliver food, including the requisite miyokuguk, or seaweed soup, a post-birth Korean staple. In the lactation room, beads of sweat run down the forehead of a lactation specialist who squeezes drops of breast milk out of nipples, not always gently, to help with production. A limber Pilates instructor offers tips on body alignment and recovery during classes on the roof. While Mrs. Kim recommends guests stay for 21 days, she has mostly abandoned the folk customs that were still in style when she had her first child, like making sure a new mother's hands are never put into cold water and avoiding air conditioning even in the summer. We have air conditioning, she said. The new class of jury one also hired nurses, nutritionists, and pediatricians, and as the overall quality of care improved at the centers, 
more moms, especially first-time mothers, book stays. Now, 8 out of 10 South Korean mothers go to a jury one after giving birth, and private centers like St. Park are known among Korean women as one of the best parts of childbirth recovery. Pregnant women clamor to get into their jury one of choice, and the competition has become so stiff that some moms send in booking requests as soon as they see the double lines on their pregnancy test. Chun Hai Rim, who is expecting her first child in March, said that her husband had to use two phones to make a reservation at Heritage Ching Dom, one of the top jury ones in Seoul. Trinity Youngson, another saw-after sinner, put her on the waiting list. They were like, you called now? Miss Chun said. She was just seven weeks pregnant at the time. Part of the appeal of booking a jury one is the chance to spend time with other first-time moms who have children of the same age. Anadar, a sole jury one that opened in October, says its goal is to help moms stay connected even after they receive their postpartum care. We bring together mothers with similar interests and personalities, said Zhang Minyu, the chief executive officer at Anadar. Ms. Chun pointed out that she chose Heritage because it was recommended to her by friends. People try to make good friends at jury one, she said. That culture continues throughout the child's life. You kind of want to get your children to get along with people in the same social class, she added. The issues of class and cost are highly sensitive in South Korea, where inequality is on the rise. Two weeks at St. Park, not including massages, facials, and hair treatments, cost more than $6,000. Insurance does not cover the fees, but they can be subsidized by the government through a stipend meant to encourage more families to have babies. As pricey as some jury wands can be, their cost is but a blip in the overall expense of raising a child in South Korea, a fact that may help explain the country's birth rate. One of the reasons people don't want to give birth is because all the postpartum care that's so great here. It's only for two weeks, and then there's the life after that, which is forever, Miss Chun said. Allison Kang, a Korean-American living in Seoul, had her first child in March. She said being at a jury one helped her recover from her complicated delivery. I think why it works in Korea is because there's such an emphasis on recovery. I really wish there was the same emphasis in the United States or anywhere, she said. Some moms say newborns are too vulnerable to be left in the care of strangers in the jury one system. But Ms. Kang said that her room was just steps away from her daughter in the nursery and that she never felt far away. It's incredibly important to allow ourselves to be able to be rested and not feel bad if we need to get better, she said. Standing in front of St. Park on a recent afternoon, Ms. Kim, the owner, said that even though her business was profit-driven, she still thinks as a mom. Every mom, when they check out, she added, they always cry. So, part of my goal on this show, and as a journalist, if I may, is to inform you, to give you a glimpse of what's happening around the world and how things are in places that you may not be familiar with. I am a weapon of mass instruction. Okay. And... Apparently, South Korea has it right when it comes to postpartum care. Something that is incredibly important. Something that does not get looked at, talked about, or considered except for too often by struggling new mothers. Um, granted, in South Korea, it is very expensive not just to raise a child but to stay at one of these jury wands as mentioned in the article but hey south korea i give you props for focusing on healing 
for making sure that there are options for new mothers when they have given birth to get back to being themselves, to be in a proper state of mind and body to adequately care for their little ones. Um, I wish that we had things like this in the United States. I am an advocate for new moms. Okay. They have uh, one of the toughest jobs that there is in taking care of these babies, giving life to these little doppelgangers. These ones that look like we used to. It's a hard job to care for them, especially when you first get home from the hospital after all that a woman's body has gone through in trying to give life and give birth to this child. And they deserve to be well taken care of and supported. And in America, the richest country in 2024, we so often get it wrong. We so often don't offer enough. And so I thought it was worthwhile to share a country that is taking it seriously, that's trying to put together options for those who are able. And I hope that it's something that catches on, something that becomes more affordable. Then in our broken healthcare system, that we will take seriously the health, the well-being, the healing of those who have just given birth. Take care of our ladies. I think on average, uh, a country is supposed to have something like a birth rate of 2.3 children per family. And in most countries, including ours, that rate is falling. And a lot of it has to do with costs and health care associated with giving birth. And we can do better. And South Korea is doing better. I thought this was an interesting story and one worth covering for sure. Our last story in the world of politics this week. San Francisco tried to build a $1.7 million toilet. It's still not done. An expensive public bathroom project has come to symbolize the city's bureaucratic inefficiencies. You could say San Francisco's charming No Valley neighborhood has it all. A thriving commercial corridor brimming with restaurants, bookstores, and artisan coffee shops. So many throngs of young families that it has the moniker Stroller Valley. A town square with yoga classes and a farmer's market. But what No Valley still needs is the toilet. (laughs) What it still needs is the toilet. Don't we all? Don't we all, No Valley? We all need a toilet. I digress. Fifteen months after city officials were ready to throw a party in the No Valley Town Square to celebrate the funding for a tiny bathroom with the toilet and sink, nothing but mulch remains in its place. The toilet project broke down the minute taxpayers realized the city was planning an event to celebrate $1.7 million in state funds that local politicians had secured for the lone 150-square-foot structure. That's enough to purchase a single-family home in San Francisco, with multiple bathrooms, and a mansion in Alabama, um, land in Alabama, very many acres of land in Alabama. I digress. Even more confounding was the explanation that the tiny bathroom would take two to three years to install because of the city's labyrinth permitting and building process. City leaders quickly canceled their potty party, and Governor Gavin Newsom of California took back the funds. Late-night comedians skewered the city. Residents dubbed the saga Toilet Gate, and the $1.7 million toilet soon became the It costume at local Halloween parties that year. For many residents, the episode has illustrated why San Francisco so often gets bogged down by inefficiency. 
If an army of more than 30,000 city employees with a $14 billion annual budget cannot build a simple bathroom in a reasonable way, what hope is there that San Francisco can solve its housing shortage or fentanyl crisis? Why isn't there a toilet here? I just don't get it. Nobody does. Ted Weinstein, a literary agent who lives in the No Valley and passes by the town square daily, said on a recent weekday, It's yet another example of the city that can't. No Valley neighbors had been pleading for a public toilet in the town square since it was converted from a parking lot in 2016. The makeover included plumbing for a bathroom, but no actual bathroom because money ran out. Children enjoying the playground and adults chatting over coffee at bright red tables have simply had to hold it. City officials have tried to explain why $1.7 million was the normal price tag for a small public bathroom. The high cost of everything in San Francisco, including construction materials, hiring an architect who would draw up plans, soliciting community feedback on the design. Numerous layers of review by commission after commission required the city to pay for staff time. Even the Civic Design Review Committee must determine whether the bathroom is appropriate to its context in the urban environment. The difficulty of building a bathroom in San Francisco has shed light on why many projects face cost overruns and delays. A recent state report found it takes longer and costs more to build housing in San Francisco than anywhere else in California. It takes 523 days on average for a developer to get the initial go-ahead to construct housing and another 605 days to get building permits. And after spending five years and more than $500,000 to design bespoke trash cans, with the prototypes costing more than $12,000 apiece, the city has shelved the plan to put 3,000 of them on street corners because of a budget deficit. Mayor London Breed has repeatedly vowed to slash the city's red tape and has made it faster and easier for small business owners to get permission to open and has backed local and state laws to speed housing construction. Her spokesman, Jeff Creighton, pointed to a quick overhaul last year of the decrepit United Nations Plaza into a skate park and a project plan nearby to turn office space into housing. Still, he acknowledged, public projects take a lot of time and money. You don't say. You don't say that public projects take a lot of time and money. Three years and $1.7 million for a potty. It's worth changing the laws that are in place around construction projects like the restroom that slow things down, he said. In the case of the No Valley Toilet, the bad publicity was enough to attract donors seeking good publicity. In November 2022, a month after the kerfuffle began, and that's one of my favorite vocabulary words, kerfuffle. If you're a journalist and you put that word in your article, hey, it may wind up on this show. Kerfuffle. Two businessmen in the toilet industry agreed to donate a modular bathroom and pay the installation costs, cutting the price tag by hundreds of thousands of dollars. Chad Kaufman, president of the public restroom company, offered to donate a modular toilet to the town square. His friend Vaughn Buckley, the chief executive of volumetric building companies, vowed to provide free architecture and engineering work to get the site ready. The pair also said they would pay local union workers to install the commode. The project seemed to gain steam once the city and Mr. Buckley's company finalized an agreement in April 2023. But months have gone by with only weeds and mulch sitting where the toilet was supposed to go. Discussions appeared to break down last year according to a December 22 letter from the city's Recreation and Parks Department to Mr. Buckley. Your team was unresponsive to our repeated attempts to engage, the letter declares. We're receiving inquiries from citizens, journalists, and local lawmakers on the status of the highly publicized project. We'll need answers to questions. 
One of the sticking points the letter states was Mr. Buckley's concern over high costs to hire local workers to complete his portion of the work. Mr. Buckley said this week that the city's construction costs continue to be a challenge and contended that the city's permitting process contributed to the delay. The toilet has now cleared those hurdles and he said he hopes physical work can begin next month. But Mr. Buckley said the bathroom should be ready for use by April for less money and sooner than under the original time frame. Mr. Kaufman, the one donating the actual toilet, is still fully on board also. My portion is done, he said, noting that the toilet is ready and waiting in the yard of his bathroom factory in Minden, Nevada. He said he will pay for traffic control when a truck carrying the shrink-wrapped toilet eventually makes its way down 24th Street and for a crane that will lift the loo into place. Raphael Mandelman, a San Francisco supervisor who represents Snow Valley, said that he's been trying to chip away at the city's web of regulations that make projects so costly and time-consuming. He's crafting a charter amendment to slim the city's government structure, which includes 56 commissions and 74 oversight boards. Under city law, for example, installing the No Valley Toilet, even the free one, requires that the Recreation and Parks Department coordinate with or seek approval from San Francisco Public Works, the Planning Department, the Department of Building Inspection, the Arts Commission, the Public Utilities Commission, the Mayor's Office on Disability, and Pacific Gas and Electric. To unravel everything that needs to be unraveled to make government work, a lot of people have to focus on that as a very high priority, said Mr. Mandelman. It's easy to push that aside as you run from crisis to crisis. In the meantime, Governor Newsom has released the $1.7 million back to San Francisco after city officials promised to use the funds to install two or three public toilets, and not just one. However, little progress has been made on those either. So... The city of San Francisco, one of the largest, most prominent and important cities in the state of California, one of the largest states in our country, can't even build a 150-square-foot bathroom with three years' time and $1.7 million allotted. I don't want to hear another word about Gavin Newsom for president. I don't want to hear another word. One of the man's largest cities in the state where he is governor cannot even build a toilet. They can't install a commode even when the commode and the labor are donated. This is absurd. I find this to be incredible. This is almost like a miracle just in reverse fashion. That they cannot build a toilet with $1.7 million in three years time. Hey. I installed a new toilet in my house last weekend with my wife watching YouTube videos. Took about 30 minutes and only cost the price of the commode from Lowe's. Hire me. Pay me $300,000 and we'll call it even. Gavin Newsom, San Francisco and Company. And to be fair, Gavin Newsom is not running for president. He's just going all over the country acting like he's running for president. Publicly, he is supportive of Joe Biden. He's not on the ballot, but he certainly is trying to position himself for a future run. And his state is a mess. Businesses and the populace are fleeing to other states. The fentanyl crisis is run amok just like it has in other parts of our country. Homelessness is through the roof and you can't even build a proper potty.
The No Valley has everything, they say. Except for a place for children and their parents to use the restroom when they're out in public. What an indictment on the government of the city of San Francisco. That they have so much red tape. That the cost of living is so high. That they're so inefficient. That they can't even build a toilet. With $1.7 million. Three years time. And the parts and the labor donated. What a clown show. What a... I mean, we're talking Bozo the Clown. What a clown show that San Francisco has become. And I'm sorry to the residents of the No Valley. They were going to throw a party. Because this toilet was going to be installed. And even that had to be canceled because, hey. We've run out of money. We've run out of time. We can't get it done. We're at an impasse. When it comes to building. A 150 square foot bathroom. Absurd. That's all the news in the world of politics this week. Let's switch to this, the news in the world of sports, and let's hit the headlines. Joel Embiid has lateral meniscus injury in left knee. Jim Harbaugh says his goal is multiple titles with the Chargers. Memphis Grizzlies trade center Stephen Adams to the Rockets for guard Victor Oladipo. Cliff Kingsbury expected to be named Raiders offensive coordinator. Boston College head football coach Halfley hired as Packers defensive coordinator. NBA not alarmed by offensive eruptions as of late. Number three, North Carolina upset by Georgia Tech in final seconds in men's basketball. And finally, the Washington Commanders hire Cowboys defensive coordinator Dan Quinn as new head coach. So all of our stories in the world of sports tonight are focused on the NFL. But first, a couple of passing bulletins when it comes to the world of NBA basketball. The Boston Celtics, who were at one time 20-0 and at home, have now lost three out of their last five home games, including last night to the Los Angeles Lakers without LeBron or AD, but with Darvin Ham. Somehow the Bucks are looking worse so far under Doc Rivers. If only that could have been predicted. Oh, wait a minute. And Trey Young somehow was left out of the All-Star game again, even while averaging 27 and 11, the only player in NBA history to miss the All-Star game two years in a row, averaging at least 25 and 10. With the Super Bowl just around the corner, of course, we have to talk some NFL football. But before we get to the NFL playoffs, I want to take just a second to talk about former Patriots coach Bill Belichick. Uh, Bill Belichick, who has won six Super Bowl titles and yet somehow could not land a job in the coaching carousel. It's now been confirmed that of the six jobs that were open, he interviewed for at least two with those two jobs that we know of being the Atlanta Falcons and the Washington Commanders, and he did not get either one. And the question is why? What does this say about his current prospects as a football coach? Does this at all shape the narrative around his legacy? He has been viewed over the last decade as the best X's and O's coach in football and probably the greatest coach of all time professionally. And he can't even land a job. Dan Quinn, 43-42 and 42 overall as a head coach, landed a job. But not Bill Belichick. The Carolina Panthers 
didn't even hire. Bill Belichick. So what is it that's going on here? Is it because Bill Belichick in those interviews that he got said that he intended to be the GM also? And we all know that has not gone very well in New England. Is it that he is now viewed as someone who the game has passed by? Tom Brady has clearly been the more successful of the two post-divorce, but has the final copy of the story been written? Will we see Bill Belichick on the sidelines again? He wasn't a fit for any of these six teams. Will he be a fit for any team that has a job open next year? If teams that have franchise quarterbacks and solid defenses and and pieces who are close to being competitive on the NFL landscape didn't take a chance on the greatest coach of all time now, who will? If the Eagles and the Cowboys didn't swap out their coaches for Bill Belichick, if the Chargers would rather have Jim Harbaugh, if the Bears would rather take their chances with their coach, if the rebuilding teams like the Commanders and the Panthers and the Falcons all pass, what would be a scenario where he gets a job on the sidelines again? And what does this mean for his legacy? Up until the last couple of years, if you ask the question, who is the greatest football coach of all time? 90% of observers would have to say Bill Belichick. Six Super Bowl titles is remarkable. No doubt he's a phenomenal X's and O's coach. He built a dynasty in New England. But our world is a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of world, especially in professional sports. And lately hasn't been very pretty for Bill. For his draft picks, for his football team, for his roster construction... Bill Belichick may be one of the greatest football coaches of all time, but he's not one of the greatest GMs, and the fact that those two have been paired has really done some damage. That Tom Brady left and won a Super Bowl the very next year in Tampa Bay, his hand-picked landing spot. And the fact that Bill Belichick could not do the same. He couldn't call his own shot. He couldn't call his own number. Is it possible that Bill Belichick is the greatest X's and O's coach, but not the greatest head coach of all time? Is it possible that we didn't give enough credit to Tom Brady? Is it possible that the last couple of years and his role as a GM are going to tarnish the way that he's viewed when it comes to overall success in his career despite his Super Bowl victories? It remains to be seen. I think that he's probably the greatest football coach of all time. He's definitely in the top two or three. But if we're being honest, Andy Reid is not that far behind. Andy's quickly catching up when it comes to total wins. He already has two Super Bowl victories and he's going for his third in a couple of weeks. If he coaches for four more seasons, let's say, with Patrick Mahomes at the helm, who knows where he'll end up. He's won a lot of games. He's won a lot of division titles. He has a generational quarterback just like Bill Belichick did in New England. I think to me the most surprising thing is that it was clear that Bill Belichick planned to coach again. And yet he didn't get a job. And I think that that's going to inform and shape the narrative when it comes to how he's viewed. I'm not saying that it should, but I think that it might. What do you think? Is Bill Belichick the greatest coach of all time? If not, who else is? Get at us on X at In the Shed 4 and let us know what you think. Email the show at In the Shed with Wes at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. The other topic that I would like to touch on in the NFL before we get to the action on the field is the kerfuffle, there's that word again, around Aaron Rodgers and the New York Jets. 
An article came out in The Athletic the other day saying that the Jets are a dysfunctional organization and that things fell apart because they tried too hard to appease Aaron Rodgers in, in order to get him to agree to a trade to the Jets. And they did appease him in the sense that they went with all of the guys that he wanted. They brought in wide receivers Alan Lazard and Randall Cobb, running back Dalvin Cook, backup quarterback Tim Boyle, and even offensive coordinator Nathaniel Hackett, none of which really worked out this season. And the story has gained traction in the sports media world for a couple of reasons. One, because it's Aaron Rodgers who is a lightning rod. And two, because it took place in New York City. Um, The article paints a picture of an organization that has put themselves firmly in the pocket of a star quarterback to their own detriment. And hey, this is a complete non-story. It's a complete non-story. It's bad journalism is what it is, and I know because I am, in fact, a journalist. All they did was piece together some quotes from some unhappy teammates on the way that the season went and stitch together a narrative, there's that word again, to talk about a polarizing player and get some clicks. Look, did the New York Jets push all of their chips into the center of the table with Aaron Rodgers? Absolutely they did. No question about it. They did everything in their power to get him, even if that meant bringing in some guys that did not have great seasons. But hey, here's the other side of the coin. Maybe they didn't have great seasons because they weren't catching passes or taking handoffs from Aaron Rodgers. (gasps) Maybe one plus one equals, say it with me, two. Some of y'all were like three. No, it's two. I'm in Alabama. Even I know that one. Let's keep it a buck like we always do on this show. What sank the Jets' season was not that they did too much to appease Aaron Rodgers, but the fact that in the first game of the year, on like the first or second play from scrimmage, they lost him for the season. That's what did it. That's why this team was no good. Do you really think that a healthy Aaron Rodgers would not have made a difference for that squad? That having one of the most talented quarterbacks in NFL history instead of that kid from the Mormon school would not have made them better? Give me a break. Um, And look, I know a lot of this is the optics around the situation. The Jets went all in for a 40-year-old Aaron Rodgers. The Packers got better and better throughout the year without him. Head coach Robert Sala is someone that has not proven his merit as a head coach. Aaron Rodgers, even before coming to the Jets, had not thrown for 300 yards in a game in some time. But let's call a spade a spade. The Jets were not going anywhere before they got Aaron Rodgers. They did whatever they had to to hitch their wagon to him in hopes that it would work out. And it didn't. And that's sports sometimes. That's the way that it works. The man got injured. It was unfortunate. And look, I'm somebody that told you even before his injury that I didn't think they were going to make the playoffs. I did not see them as a Super Bowl threat, even with a very good defense and a very good quarterback. I am not sold on their head coach. I didn't like the addition of Nathaniel Hackett. I think that Aaron Rodgers' best years are behind him. But to pretend like it wasn't a worthwhile wager... To pretend like this organization has 
been a bastion of responsibility and success and that Aaron Rodgers stepped in and messed it all up, it's just disingenuous. And I'm not even a huge Aaron Rodgers fan, but it's just disingenuous and it's intellectually bankrupt, okay? It's bad journalism. It's clickbait. The Athletic and anybody else espousing such things should do better. The Jets have been dysfunctional. They tried to turn it around by bringing in an all-time great quarterback, and it didn't work out because he got injured. That's the common sense, real-life truth. Book it. All right, let's get to some results on the field. The AFC and NFC Championship games, the NFL playoffs, we have our Super Bowl matchup. The Chiefs defeated the Ravens 17-10, and it really wasn't even that close. The Ravens' defense that has been phenomenal all year long was just okay. They were not great. Pat Mahomes and his receivers were good enough. And Andy Reid and his staff completely outclassed John Harbaugh and his team. The Ravens' offensive plan was unimaginative, if not overall disappointing. Their offensive game plan was bad, and Lamar Jackson wasn't very good either. Um, I don't understand why the Ravens ran the ball six times total in the second half. I don't understand why Lamar Jackson was a statue in the backfield and refused to use his legs, whether that was a part of the game plan or whether he just wanted to show a different level of skill set as a pocket passer. Hey, now's not the time. Now's the time to win the game. And you're one of the fastest human beings alive. Electric with the ball, but you wouldn't run. And look, you have to give credit where credit is due. The Chiefs came in with the game plan. They executed it. Patrick Mahomes was Patrick Mahomes. He did enough. The Chiefs' defense played better than I expected them to. It's hard to bet against Andy Reid and Pat Mahomes. They are the reigning Super Bowl champions. And it's been obvious that they don't have the same squad this year as last. They haven't been as good this year all season long. I just didn't see them making it this far. But they have Andy Reid, and they have Pat Mahomes, and so far that's been enough. I got this one wrong, choosing the Ravens to win. They were my Super Bowl pick from the beginning of the season, and it looked really good. It looked like a solid pick until they ran up against the Chiefs. The Chiefs are in the Super Bowl. In the other championship game matchup, the 49ers beat the Lions in a thrilling 34-31 comeback. The 49ers were down by 17 points at one point. Jared Goff and the Lions offense were looking great. But then Brock Purdy showed up. Brock Purdy ran the ball for like 60 yards. Um, that man looked like a toddler that you told you cannot eat that, bring that here when he took off. Uh, because he is not fast, but he sure was quick during this game. And Brock Purdy, you can say what you want about him. And I know that this is somewhat cliche, but the man is a gamer. He's a gamer. His teammates believe in him, and the Niners have a lot of talent on the field. The Lions were my pick in an upset. They were America's football team. Dan Campbell and the Fighting Knee Biters. 
And that pick looked so good for so long. And then Kyle Shanahan and talent and coaching and execution worn out. I have no idea what Dan Campbell was thinking not taking field goals. If the man just would have kicked a couple field goals, he'd be in the Super Bowl. But hey, he didn't and he's not. Chiefs and 49ers for all the marbles. It's San Francisco and Kansas City for the Super Bowl. The 49ers are two-point favorites. And you have a really good matchup when it comes to head coaches and quarterbacks. Kyle Shanahan and Brock Purdy versus Andy Reid and Pat Mahomes. And Pat Mahomes becomes the youngest quarterback in NFL history to reach his fourth Super Bowl. In years past, when it comes to the Super Bowl, we have uh, broken down the matchup position by position. Let me save you some time. Other than quarterback, the 49ers have the better roster. They just do. They have more talent on the field. They have more offensive weapons. They have a better defense. But hey, I'm done picking against Andy Reid and Pat Mahomes. I'm just not going to do it again. They may not win the game, but I'm done picking against Andy Reid and Pat Mahomes in the playoffs. I think this game has an opportunity to be a lot lower scoring than what we may expect. I think both defenses will show up and play well. Both coaching staffs will come with a game plan in place to limit the other offense. And I have the Chiefs winning 23-16. to The Chiefs go back-to-back, something that is near impossible to do in the NFL. Very difficult. Pat Mahomes and Andy Reid win another Super Bowl. Kansas City 23, San Francisco 16. That is my official In the Shed with Wes Anderson Super Bowl prediction. Who do you have winning this matchup? How do you expect things to go? Do Brock Purdy and Kyle Shanahan get things done? Does all the talent on offense like Christian McCaffrey and George Kittle and Debo Samuel and company, does that prove to be too much? Brandon Ayuk, does that prove to be too much? Or do the Chiefs find a way to get it done again? What is the score going to be? Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at intheshed4. Let me know your predictions. Mine is Chiefs 23, 49ers 16. As always, when it comes to the Super Bowl, there are some pretty fun prop bets, things that you can bet your money on. You can put your children's college fund up for that are off the wall and bizarre and really don't matter at all. As always, we like to highlight a couple of those prop bets and give you our opinion. The first is, how many times will Taylor Swift be shown on TV? And I'm thinking four. I think she'll be shown not one, two, or three, but precisely four times. Will Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey announce a pregnancy at the Super Bowl? No. Because that would be crazy. And that would break the internet. And the answer is no. Taylor wants a ring first. But I don't think they're going to make it. The answer is no. Will halftime performer Usher wear sunglasses at any point during his performance? Of course the answer is yes. Of course the answer is yes. Usher is going to wear sunglasses at some point. It doesn't matter if it's nighttime. He wears his sunglasses at night. Watch. 
And finally, what color Gatorade will the winning coach be doused with? And since we picked the Chiefs to win, I'm going with red. Now, I might need you to write into the show and tell me if I'm correct about that one because your boy is red-green colorblind, okay? But I'm going with red. I have to add a quick disclaimer that none of that is advice when it comes to finances. Make bets at your own discretion. Please do not sue me. Okay. That's all the news in the world of sports. This week, let's switch to this. The news in the world of the paranormal. Where our first story this week takes us to... Iowa. Yeah. That's right, my babies. We go into Middle America. We're going to Iowa. Man accused of destroying Satanic Temple display at Iowa Capitol is now charged with a hate crime. A Mississippi man accused of destroying a statue of a pagan idol at Iowa State Capitol is now being charged with a hate crime. The statue was brought to the Capitol by the Satanic Temple of Iowa under state rules allowing religious displays in the building during the holidays. The move drew strong criticism from state and national leaders including Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds and Florida Governor and former presidential candidate Ron DeSantis, both Republicans. On December 14th, the figure depicting the horned deity Baphomet, a.k.a. the devil, demon, evil, was destroyed beyond repair, according to the group. Michael Cassidy, a former congressional and legislative candidate from Mississippi, was charged the next day with fourth-degree criminal mischief, a misdemeanor. He told the conservative website The Sentinel that my conscience is held captive to the word of God not the bureaucratic decree, and so I acted. Now, Polk County prosecutors have charged Cassidy with a more serious offense that Des Moines Register reported. A document made public Tuesday charged him with felony third-degree criminal mischief. It alleges that the act was committed in violation of an individual's rights under Iowa's hate crime statute. Evidence shows the defendant made statements to law enforcement and the public indicating that he destroyed the property because of the victim's religion. Lynn Hicks, a spokesman for the Polk County Attorney's Office, said in a statement. Cassidy's attorney, Sarah Pascal, declined to comment on the new charge. In previous court filings, she's accused the Satanic Temple of making filings that are only meant to evoke strong emotions and incite others. Cassidy is scheduled to be arraigned February 15th. He's raised more than $84,000 for his defense from nearly 2,000 supporters, according to the fundraising site Give, Send, Go. Founded in 2013, the Salem, Massachusetts-based Satanic Temple says it does not believe in Satan, but describes itself as a non-theistic religious organization that advocates for secularism. It is separate from the Church of Satan, which was founded in the 1960s. So, off the jump, let's just get a couple of things out of the way when it comes to this story, okay? Was it a good idea for this man from Mississippi to drive all the way to Iowa and knock this statue over. Was that even remotely a good idea? Categorically, no. No. It wasn't intelligent. It wasn't necessary. It wasn't something that he ever should have done. Do I understand that in a nation such as ours with the freedoms that we have, that the separation of church and state requires that the government not favor any one religion over another. Yes, I understand that. 
and I respect it. Okay, now that those two things are out of the way, because that's where I'm going to get most of my hate mail. (laughs) Can we just be real? Can we be honest for a minute? Can we keep it a buck? I think we can. This is crazy. This is absurd. Where has our common sense gone in this country? That we're using something like separation of church and state to allow a group that calls themselves a religion, even though they believe in no God, who calls themselves the satanic temple, even though they don't believe in Satan, to erect a statue in a government building that looks like a literal devil. It's insane. It's just ridiculous. The only reason they want to do it is to needle religious folks. If we're being honest, the only reason they want to do it is to push the envelope. It has nothing to do with rights. It has nothing to do with religious beliefs or practices. I'm not sure that this group even qualifies as a religion just because they call themselves one. There's certainly a group of people. They certainly have some beliefs. But a religion I do not see. I get it. If a Christmas display is allowed to be put up by Christians, I don't have a problem with a menorah going up next to it. I don't have a problem if Islam or Buddhism or Hinduism or Sikhism or any other religion that you could name wants to put up a display. But because of the literal wording of the law and the way it's written... To say that we have to allow a statue of the devil to be put up in our government building. Hey, I'm throwing the BS flag on that one. We have jumped the shark. Our reality is stranger than fiction. Because that's just absurd. That's just silly. And these folks are based out of Salem, Massachusetts. Hmm. I'm not saying, I'm just saying I find that to be interesting. This man never should have gone from Mississippi to Iowa. He should have just read the headline and left it alone. But by the same token, we're charging a veteran. A man who has literally put his life on the line for this country. With a hate crime where he could face significant jail time for pushing over a statue of the literal devil what are we doing what are we doing this isn't about rights not really it's about one people without religion pushing back on folks who have religion and i think common sense tells us all that that's what's going on a literal statue of the devil wouldn't happen in alabama i can guarantee you that From Iowa to the Pacific Ocean, we go for our next story. The mystery of Amelia Earhart is tantalized for 86 years. Why it's taken so long to solve. Solving a mystery nearly nine decades old isn't as easy as connecting the dots, especially when these dots are tiny islands spread throughout the world's largest ocean. A team of underwater archaeologists with deep-sea vision using marine robots equipped with sonar imaging believe they may have found the airplane belonging to Amelia Earhart 
the famed aviator who, along with her navigator Fred Noonan, disappeared as they tried to circumnavigate the globe in 1937. And while the world may be tantalizingly close to learning the fate of Earhart and Noonan 86 years after the pair's plane went down somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, there are significant challenges that remain. First and foremost among them, the sheer size and depth of the Pacific. It's a huge area, and the problem is the plane is really, really small, said Nicholas Macris, professor of mechanical and ocean engineering at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and an expert in ocean exploration. This is like looking for a needle in a haystack, he said. Airhead's Lockheed Electra 10E had a wingspan of about 55 feet and was 38 feet long. Compare that, Macra said, to a one degree of latitude, which is 60 nautical miles. The Pacific Ocean is 135 degrees. It's a monstrous area, and the plane, if it's even intact, would be minuscule. If it's not intact, finding its remains would be even more difficult. The breadth of the search area is one matter. The depth of the ocean where it's believed Earhart's plane went missing is another. It's lost in the darkness of the ocean, said Macris, whose specialty is undersea imaging and acoustics. The sound from sonar equipment takes the darkness out, but it's so far down that, from the surface, it can look like a speck. Autonomous underwater machines have to survey the ocean floor in what Macris described as a lawnmower pattern to get a closer, more accurate glimpse of the possible wreckage. Anthony Romeo, CE of Deep Sea Vision and a former Air Force intelligence officer, recognized those challenges when he and his team set out to find Earhart's plane in early September. The remoteness of where she went down was the biggest obstacle, he told USA Today. There are not a lot of ports, not much equipment, not a lot of vessels in that area. If it went down in Lake Michigan, we would have found it years ago. The Pacific Ocean is huge, which Amelia Earhart found out for herself on her final doomed flight, Romeo said. It's an incredible distance to cover. We were out there for a hundred days over rough seas and not a lot of ports or reprovision. Romeo said the discovery of what looks like a plane at the bottom of the ocean is just the first step for his team. Next up, confirming what they found is a plane and that it's Earhart's. That's where we need different equipment so we can take a closer look, see how it's laying on the sand, and work with others who have an interest in this, Romeo said. Asked whether that meant sending down a manned vessel, Romeo said that that was unlikely. We have no interest in doing that at the moment, he said acknowledging the tragic deaths of five people on the Titan submersible in June of 2023. Bringing up the wreck, again, if it is a plane, and if that plane is the one that belonged to Earhart, would be a massive project that would probably take years, according to Romeo. Still, he wants Earhart's plane to ultimately find a home in the Smithsonian Institute. The former pilot and son of a longtime Pan Am pilot, Romeo called Earhart a true American hero who came from humble beginnings to international celebrity. As long as she's still missing, there will be people trying to find her. If Romeo's right, and he said he feels pretty good about it, finding Earhart's plane is only one of a host of maritime mysteries. In 2014, Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 and the 239 people on board disappeared on a trip from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. Only a tailpiece from the plane has been found off the coast of Mozambique. Romeo said he loved to search for that plane, giving closure to families still desperate for answers. In 1945, five bombers took off from Fort Lauderdale, Florida on a routine three-hour training flight. Collectively called Flight 19, the bombers' lead pilot seemed to become disoriented, and the planes eventually flew so far off course, they lost radio contact with their base, according to History.com. They were never found. There are still missing soldiers from the Vietnam War. In the war's earliest days, Flying Tiger Line Flight 739 was headed to Saigon, 
when it and 107 people on board disappeared before a stopover in the Philippines, according to Flying Magazine. The plane was never found, and adding to the family's anguish, those presumed dead have never been included among the official war dead, though a bill was introduced to Congress in 2021 to change that. So, the mystery of what happened to Amelia Earhart has always been something that I've found to be incredibly interesting. Um, we've even covered some of the theories of what may or may not have happened on this show before. Some people think that she got off course and crashed in the Pacific Ocean, that she got disoriented and ran out of gas, that she crash-landed on an island where she did not get rescued and perished, or even that she landed and was taken hostage by the Japanese, where she was later buried in a shallow grave there. Um, and the truth is, we really don't know. The most likely scenario is that something went wrong, and she ran out of gas, got disoriented, and that her plane is somewhere in the bottom of the ocean. But I don't know. Each of these theories has some evidence behind it, I'm actually working on a guest now that does research on this topic. I'm not going to name names, but it would be a phenomenal interview for us here on In the Shed. And now there's a group of people that think maybe, perhaps, they have found what looks like it could be a plane within 100 miles of where she was supposed to go, of where she was supposed to stop to refuel. Um... I don't know if you've read this story, seen this news, if you've seen the image, the sonar image does look like something at the bottom of the ocean in the shape of a plane, but as the article says, we just cannot be sure. Until something gets closer, until we have more information, until we have more data and clear images, this is just a possibility, in an ocean of possibilities, pun intended. Um... I don't know, I thought this was an interesting news article, something worth talking about on the show and sharing with you. I'm not sold that this is Amelia Earhart's plane. It could be, but I'm not sold. And we won't know for years. What do you think? Is it possible that this is Amelia Earhart's plane that has finally been discovered? That the mystery has been solved? What percentage would you put on this being it? Is it above 50%? Is it below 50%? Are you confident? Do you think that no, this is probably not it? What theory do you put the most stock in? Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Get at us on Twitter at intheshed4 and let us know. This is one of those mysteries of our history that I just rhymed. Mystery, history, dropping bars. This is one of those historical mysteries that may never be solved. 86 years and counting, but I sure hope that one day it is. From the Pacific Ocean, we go to your brain for the next story. Not my brain, but somebody's brain. Elon Musk's Neuralink implants brain chip in First Human. The First Human patient has received an implant from brain chip startup Neuralink on Sunday and is recovering well, the company's billionaire founder, Elon Musk, has said. Initial results show promising neuron spike detection, whatever that means, Musk said in a post on the social media platform X, aka Twitter, on Monday. 
Spikes are activity by neurons, which the National Institute of Health describes as cells that use electrical and chemical signals to send information around the brain to the body. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration had given the company clearance last year to conduct its first trial to, t- to test its implant on humans, a critical milestone in the startup's ambitions to help patients overcome paralysis and a host of neurological conditions. In September, Neuralink said it received approval for recruitment for the human trial. The study uses a robot to surgically place a brain-computer interface implant in a region of the brain that controls the intention to move, Neuralink said previously, adding that its initial goal was to enable people to control a computer cursor or keyboard using their thoughts alone. The implant's ultra-fine threads help transmit signals in participants' brains, Neuralink has said. The first product from Neuralink would be called Telepathy, Musk said in a separate post on X. The startup's prime study is a trial for its wireless brain-computer interface to evaluate the safety of the implant and surgical robot. Mm-mm. Mm-mm, no. Uh-uh. Nope. Nope. Nah. Nah, fam. No. No. Nuh-uh. Thousand times no. Not now, not me, not ever, not for any reason. No, 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 no. And no. Um, that's how I really feel. <laughs> and look, I have been clear when it comes to Neuralink and AI. I do not trust you. I do not trust you. I don't care what it is you say that it's supposed to do, what it is that you're aiming for, how neat it sounds. It's a no for me, dog. It's a hard pass. And look, if it helps people who cannot function the way that they are supposed to, if it helps with things like Alzheimer's, if it helps paraplegics, if it helps the blind, then wonderful. I'm all for that. But I ain't about to be one of your test monkeys, Elon Musk. And anybody that I care about, I would say, hey, please don't do that. You don't need to become a computer. For one thing, you have one basically surgically attached to your hand, but that's another rant entirely. We don't need our brains to interface better with computers. And I'm not interested in what you're selling. First of all, I done read the studies on how many of your chimps passed away while you were testing this thing and trying to get it right. And do we know for sure that the first person that has it is not in fact Elon himself? I'm not saying, I'm just saying. I just kind of had that thought and I wondered. Not a lot of details about the test subject. Perhaps it could be Elon himself. Um... I just know when the article was talking about a robot surgically implanting tiny threads into your brain. Hey. That's where I draw the line. Ain't no robot doing surgery on me. Ain't nothing getting inserted into my brain. Except for maybe some random knowledge. Because I am. A weapon of mass instruction. But I gotta say... No. Have I been clear? Do you know where I stand? What about you? Would you ever get Neuralink 
implanted into your brain? What if they tested it on 50 to 100 people and had nobody die? What if it could give you the ability to surpass the intelligence of your peers? Give you a leg up around the office? What if it was free? Would you consider it? It's a no for me. How about for you? From your brain we go to Canada for our last story this week. Kidnapped by Sasquatch, the story of Albert Ostman. Albert Ostman was a Canadian prospector who lived from around 1893 to 1975. So why is he noteworthy enough to write an article about? Well, Albert Ostman also happened to have claimed that he was abducted by a Sasquatch and held captive for six days. One evening in 1924 near Toba Inlet, British Columbia, Albert Osman was sleeping. He hadn't meant to be asleep. The previous three nights there had been signs that someone or something was visiting during his rest, and Osman had resolved to stay awake to catch the visitor in the act. Suddenly, a Sasquatch picked him up and carried him off, with the now-awake Osman, I bet so, still in his sleeping bag. He was carried for roughly three hours, after which he was put down and greeted by a family of four Sasquatch, one of which, an adult male, was eight feet tall. Osman said this of his initial encounter. They looked like a family, old man, old lady, and two young ones, a boy and a girl. The boy and the girl seemed to be scared of me. The old lady did not seem too pleased about what the old man had drug home, but the old man was waving his arms and telling them all what he had in mind. They all left me then. Osman had a gun on him which he kept close at hand, but because the Sasquatch made no move to harm him, he chose not to use it. While in captivity, Osman was fed sweet-tasting grass which was washed, stacked, and given to him by the adult female Sasquatch. Osman made many detailed observations which he later recounted, including his efforts to befriend the young male Sasquatch in order to get the larger male interested in the snuff he had on his person. His plan was to make the adult male eat an entire box of snuff with the intention to kill him in order to make his escape. In his account, Osman also made note of a briefly entertaining idea to take the young female with him whenever he finally got away, though he ultimately decided against it. In Osman's words, But what good would that have been? I would have to keep her in a cage for public display. I don't think we have any right to force our way of life on other people, and I don't think they would like it. The noise and racket in a modern city, they would not like that any more than I do. After six days, possibly because he suspected he was about to be used for breeding purposes, though this is merely speculation, Osman finally made his escape. He was somewhat successfully able to carry out his plan with the snuff, which ended up making the adult male Sasquatch groggy enough that he was able to run away. After escaping, Osman eventually came upon a logger. Naturally, he didn't mention the Sasquatch family or being held captive. I told them I was a prospector and was lost. I did not tell him I had been kidnapped by a Sasquatch, because if I had told him, he would probably have said, this guy's crazy. Osman kept his story to himself for decades, and initially it seemed that he never intended to tell it to anyone. However, in 1957, after seeing more and more Sasquatch stories appear in the press, Osman decided to come forward and tell his story to a local newspaper. Osman and his story have been under scrutiny ever since. Of course, most people didn't believe the story even then and still don't now. For example, skeptic Joe Nichols said in 2007, 
that Osman's story was more likely the result of imagination than of recollection. John Napier, a primatologist, claimed that the story was simply not possible because an entire family of Sasquatch would not have the resources to survive in that particular area, as the food sources would be too limited. Many others have criticized Osman because of the amount of time it took him to come forward, though to me that seems like the most reasonable aspect of his story. Not everyone immediately dismissed Albert Osman's story. A writer named John Green, who interviewed Osman while he was still alive, says that he believes the story holds up. His reasoning is that because the story was told in 1957, it has an air of truthfulness that it would not have if somebody told the story today. In Green's words, given in a 2003 statement, Albert was a very believable fellow, who handled tough cross-examination with cheerful composure, swore to his story without hesitation, and stuck to it until he died, but I wouldn't believe him if he were telling it today. Today, however, he would have easy sources for his descriptions of those four individuals and what they did. When his story came to light in 1957, the opposite was the case. Sasquatch were not commonly thought of as completely hair-covered creatures living much the same life as a bear. Instead, their public image was that of a tribe of giant Indians, hairy only on their heads who lived in villages, held annual get-togethers on a special mountain and used signal fires. His descriptions, so contrary to the media image of the time, have stood up wonderfully well over the years. More than that, he was questioned for hours by Darius Swindler and the veterinarian from the Seattle Primate Center, and they told me that the physical details and the actions he said he'd witnessed all rang true. In addition to Green's testimony, Osman himself claimed he had never even heard of Sasquatch until that trip in 1924. In his account, he claimed that a guide he had hired told him about the legend, saying, This old Indian was a very talkative old gentleman. He told me stories about gold brought out by a white man from his lost mine. This white man was a very heavy drinker, spent his money freely in saloons, but he had no trouble in getting more money. He would be away a few days at a time and come back with a bag of gold. But one time he went to his mine and never came back. Some people said a Sasquatch had killed him. At that time I'd never heard of Sasquatch. So I asked what kind of an animal he called a Sasquatch. The Indians said they have hair all over their bodies, but they're not animals. They're people. Big people that live in the mountains. My uncle saw the track of one that were two feet long. One old Indian saw one over eight feet tall. I told the Indian I didn't believe in their old fables about mountain giants. It might have been some thousands of years ago but not any nowadays. Albert Osman stuck to his story until his death and was interrogated multiple times without a single change to the details. He was even cross-examined by police and agreed to sign a solemn declaration which said that his account was true under oath in virtue of the Canadian Evidence Act. Osman never recanted his story despite the ridicule he faced for the rest of his life. Today, Osman's story is often cited as one of the best cases for the existence of Sasquatch. If you're interested in reading Osman's account for yourself, his story is told in John Green's 1978 book, Sasquatch, The Apes Among Us. So, what do you make of this story by Albert Osman, the Canadian, that he was abducted by an eight-foot-tall Sasquatch, taken to be with that man's family for six days? before finally escaping. This is either the most remarkable story of all time when it comes to Sasquatch, or it's complete poppycock. Um, on the one hand, you would think that if he had been with Sasquatch for six days, that maybe he would have come back with a tuft of hair, 
with something from their camp, some type of physical evidence to show that he had been where he said he had been. Um, certainly a lot of people, even at the time, did not believe the man to be telling the truth. But that book by John Green is in the pantheon of well-thought-of books when it comes to the field of Bigfoot and Sasquatch in the sense that anyone who is somebody has read that book. Um, Surprisingly, I have not read it. It's on my reading list. I've never read it. If you have a copy you want to send me in the mail, get at me on Twitter. In the Shed 4, send me a DM. I'll give you my address, and I'll read that book. It's a remarkable story. Um, I do agree with the author, the fact that he didn't say anything right away. To me, it's actually more of a positive than a negative. At that point in time, uh, Sasquatch stories, Bigfoot stories were not going around like they do today. And he had just been through a traumatic experience. He had just had something happen that was completely unbelievable. That he was still trying to wrap his mind around. And he knew that people would think he was crazy. So for me the fact that he held on to that story until others came forward. Actually lines up with how people behave and respond to trauma. Um, His story never changed. He never took back a word of it, but stood by it until the day that he died. John Green, who spent a lot of time with him, certainly believed his story to be true. And probably the most interesting factoid in this story is the fact that his description of Sasquatch now, today, is the predominant description of what a Sasquatch looks like and how it behaves. But at the time, uh, that image of a Sasquatch, that description was not as common, was not what they thought of when they heard that term. So I feel like Mr. Oseman has some circumstantial evidence that points toward his truthfulness. And then, however, there are certainly a lot of unanswered questions as well. There's certainly room to doubt. I've been clear with you, I'm 5149 Bigfoot, okay? I am a hopeful skeptic. Would love to see a body. Would love to have some first-hand evidence for myself. But I hope that it's real. And I hope that it's proven one day. This story of Albert Osman does little in the way of proof. But it does a lot in the way of adding to the mystery and the discussion, and the hunt for what is and what is not in our woods and forests. What do you think? Do you believe this story? Do you think it's completely made up and it's a hoax? Do you think it actually could be real that this man was abducted by Sasquatch and spent six days with a family of Sasquatch? Did this man get taken by some big feet? And again, I I ask you that when we refer to more than one Bigfoot, that we call them Big Feet. Because feet is the plural of foot. And when we're out here trying to sound serious talking about Bigfoot, and we're saying Bigfoots, hey, it isn't helping. 
It isn't doing us any favors. Okay. Let's say Big Feet. Is it possible this man really got abducted by some Big Feet? What do you think? Email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Find us on x at intheshed4. I would love to hear what you think about this incredible tale. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 69. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Join our membership club at patreon.com slash intheshed4. Look for us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, the Good Pods app, wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure to follow us on X at In the Shed 4. Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, talk some sports, and examine together the true story of the Circleville Letters. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best new show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scouts. Meemaw, we made it? We sure did.